and they can go, oh, that's cool, but that would mean this. So that magic would have to work like this. And that would mean that the prince's father would have had to, oh, the prince's father must have had sex with a tentacle thing. Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real, made-up things. I'm your host, Dino, and today I'm joined by BK and Demokinate as we discuss world-building with Ed Greenwood. Ed is a New York Times best-selling author, an award-winning game publisher, author of over 400 books in 30 settings, and the creator of the iconic Dungeons & Dragons setting The Forgotten Realms. Welcome aboard, Ed. It's a great pleasure to have you on today. I was definitely shocked that you agreed to even come on. I am. <laughs> I'm floored to have it's okay. you. Okay. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm. I. I don't bite. It's okay. Oh well, if you don't bite, I'm I, like this. It's just ruined. Ah, uh, whatever. Scam. I guess you can say. <laughs> and I was really looking forward to. <laughs> okay. There you go. <laughs> All right. Now, now I can actually go around bragging at cons that I've been bitten by Ed Greenwood. Um, so for those of you who um, are not very well aware as to who Ed Greenwood is uh, and the rock you've been living under, Ed, would you like to give a little bit of background about yourself? I know that we have a interview with you coming out in our print edition in June, but for those of you who will be listening to this months ahead of time, I think a little bit of background would be nice. Okay, sure. I'm 60 years old. I'm Canadian, um, male. I uh, have worked in public libraries most of my life, and I have created games since I was a little kid. And I created The Forgotten Realms, which is a large, detailed fantasy setting, before there was anything called Dungeons & Dragons, before there were any role-playing games, uh, aside from Kriegspiel, you know, the, the German officer's game, which is basically trying out your military chain of command a la Broken Telephone. You know, but aside from that role playing, there were no role playing games, period, when I created the Forgotten Realms. So I've been here all along, getting older, and during that time, have worked on tons and tons of role playing game systems, still work on them today, and I work on the realms every day of my life. And the rest is blah, 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 blah. blah, blah, blah. You know, I can go on for hours. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure I would sit here and listen for hours. Um, just such a absolute fanboy, and it is horrible. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you've never listened to our other <laughs> recordings, uh, Ed, Dino, Dino brings up Forgotten Realms a lot. So. Oh, okay. Yes. I'm so, just a gamer, okay? I'm another fat guy with a beard. I just never went away, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so relax. It's just me. <laughs> oh. Um, th this is just like peak right right next to getting J.K. Rowling to come on, and we can tell her how That's bad not. Harry Potter is. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, you know, we always talk about the Forgotten Realms in a, in a better light than we do something like Harry Potter. <laughs> Specifically, Harry Potter. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but as someone who's been around for quite a long time, you've you've seen pretty much the evolution of of the entirety of you know the gaming industry as as it could be said um 
you know, from the beginning of TSR with, with you coming on, I believe in um, AD&D, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, my first thing with TSR was just writing like any person who read Dragon or The Dragon, as it was known back then, and wanting to write an article for it. And I think I started reading Dragon regularly months to months with Dragon issue 19. And I think my first article was published in issue 30 of the Dragon. Um, although they held something I'd written for the Divine Right um, board game until issue ugh, 34. Anyway, um, so I've been around from the beginning and I just wanted to write stuff for the game. Since you said that you had been creating the Forgotten Realms since before there was D&D, what was like what was the lead up to it becoming in at least for me it was pretty much the definitive setting for the game. How did it get adopted as a campaign setting you mean? Mhm essentially yes. Yeah, okay. So I started uh playing D&D regularly in the realms in 1978. And that was because I'd been writing all these stories just to entertain myself as a young kid. And when the original three book booklets came out, I thought, oh, this is a cool idea, this D&D thing. But it's just going to devolve into an argument. You know, it, it's just like when you're playing make-believe with your friends. Bang, bang, you're dead. No, you missed me. I'm still alive. That sort of stuff. But when the Monster Manual came out and then was followed by the Player's Handbook, I said, aha. This is Jack Vance's magic system. Oh, and it's all details, so I know exactly what spells do, what their limitations are. So your your wizards, magic users in, in that edition of the game, your wizards aren't like gods in the machine that can do anything. They aren't armored tanks that can just keep on firing either. There are limitations to this, and all the monsters from mythology that I'm familiar with, plus a whole bunch of cool new ones, I know exactly how powerful they are and how they work and all that stuff. Cool! I'm adopting this as my sort of skeleton for the world. So, I'm not going to, like, overtly use game terms, but this is what's going to keep me honest as a writer. So I don't have the equivalent of um, a Wild West shootout where somebody fires their six-shooter 82 times without reloading. I need something to keep me honest. I need a uh, an armature to make it all work. This will be my armature. I started playing D&D in 1978 with a regular group of players, and we still meet all these years later, not very often, because we're all over the world. So meeting means getting on planes and flying to meet each other. And we're all busy. But because of that, my players who really wanted to play it as ham acting. Okay. They don't care so much about rules other than as a, as an armature, they want to live as characters in the world. So they want to have investments. They want to have friendships. They want to have hobbies. They want to join or local organizations. They want to talk to their neighbors, all of this stuff. They want to have skills and jobs as well as just being adventurous. So because of that, I started detailing the world in response to all of their questions. And in those days, just about everybody who played Dungeons and Dragons, if they could, read Dragon Magazine. Not just Dungeon Masters, everybody got their hands on it. So I figured it was a little more honest in some way 
if I was creating a new spell or a new magic item or a new rule or a new monster to write it up for Dragon, get it sent in, get it vetted by the editor and knowing my players would read it, but they didn't carry stacks of Dragon magazines to the play sessions. They weren't there at the table. They would vaguely remember everything I'd written and maybe cotton on to it, but they wouldn't be the sort of rules lawyer at the table reading stuff out to you. So this sort of simulated what their characters might have heard in a tavern or have past experience with a monster or whatever. So I started merrily writing stuff for Dragon Magazine. But I'm Canadian. Canadians are notoriously polite. It felt incredibly arrogant to me to write in an authorial voice for Dragon saying, Hi! My name's Ed Greenwood. You never heard of me, but I thought of a better way of rolling dice than all of you. So here it is. It felt a lot more comfortable to use a narrator. And if it was an unreliable narrator, a character in the game like Elminster or much, much, much later Volo, that narrator could lie to you or leave stuff out or just see things from their point of view. And therefore, it allowed me because I knew players read the magazine, it allowed me to be vague. Instead of saying there are eight orcs in the second room of the ruined castle and their hit points are blah, 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 I could have Alminster say, it's rumored that there are orcs in those ruins, but I don't credit it myself. So you could plant the idea for Dungeon Masters, but not say anything definitive that somebody might be misled by at the gaming table. So, as a result, I kept mentioning the Forgotten Realms in all of these articles. Unbeknownst to me, a um, library clerk in, in North York, Ontario, a lot of people at TSR read Dragon, and one of them was Jeff Grubb. And Jeff Grubb had published a position paper, an internal secret TSR document, um, entitled, A Proposal for a Unified Game World for the Second Edition of the Game. Okay, what he wanted was a world that wasn't Greyhawk because they, you know, Gary had just left the company. Okay, they wanted their own world. And they then spent two years with all the company's time and resources, designers, artists, everybody, building Dragonlance. And Dragonlance was a big, epic story. Like the Lord of the Rings, it was an epic quest. What do you do for an encore? They wanted a world that wasn't as specific as Dragonlance because the epic quest means you have this struggle among the gods, you have dragons and dragon lances, you have a, a flavor to the world. They wanted a world which they could literally, because it's, it's in Jeff's position paper, we could bolt on what we wanted, we being TSR. Pirate adventures, jungle adventures, they became Malatra, the living jungle. Um, oriental adventures, which became... Oriental Adventures, uh, Arabian Adventures, which became Al-Khadim, and all these other things. They wanted a world that was broad enough that they could put anything into it. And they were going to dump stuff they already had into it, like the Desert of Desolation modules, which have pyramids, Egyptian pyramids. Uh, they had a um, an orphaned game world, Albion, done by Doug Niles, an internal designer at TSR, um, for Gen Con UK. So they could have their own British D&D &D setting, but then 
Gen Con UK became a reprint house. So they had all this this world he'd done. And shortly after they purchased the realms, I was asked, do you mind if your Moonshade Isles go away and we just take this this stuff that Doug's done and call it the Moonshade Isles and dump it in? So that's how the Moonshades came into the realms. But the whole point was they wanted a world in a hurry that wasn't a one epic story world. It was the world of a thousand thousand stories, which was my elevator pitch for the realms. So literally Jeff Grubb, who read Dragon, had been noticing all these little mentions of the realms in all of my articles and he phoned me at the library one afternoon and i answered you know it's a public library so i'm answering the phone he says hi this is jeff grubb i'm i'm a designer at tsr um do you have a complete detailed world at home or do you make it up as you go along and i said yes and yes (laughs) and he and he said good send it and then he said, wait a minute, I'm getting ahead of myself. Call this phone number after 5 p.m. It's my boss's phone number. He wants to talk to you. And his boss is Mike Dobson. And what he, what I was doing was calling Mike Dobson at home so he could negotiate with me, unbeknownst to me, to buy the realms. And I would cheerfully have said yes to anything because what I wanted to do was get beautiful printed colored maps for the Forgotten Realms that didn't have my pencil crayon strokes in, in all the C's and stuff. So I said yes, and the rest, quote, is history. But that's how it became a game setting. And then all the way through 1986, Jeff would phone me weekly, at least weekly, sometimes twice or three times a week, and say, do you have anything on the Dungeons of the Realms? Or do you have the maps? of the? You know, Tell me what's where. And I would sit down at the typewriter and furiously type up a package And I would photocopy it at the library in case it got lost in the mail. And sure enough, one of them is still on its way to TSR. It'll never get there now because they're no longer at 201 Sheridan Springs Road. But anyway, um, and I would drop it in a FedEx envelope and send it off. And the next week, Jeff would say, this is cool. Have you got anything on dragons? And I typed them all up and sent it off again. And what Jeff and Karen Boomgarden, now Karen Conlon, then Karen Martin, were doing at TSR was putting my stuff together into what became the old gray box or FR0 or the first realms thing. And it was a way of hosting everything for the second edition of the game. And it was short circuiting this two year process that was incredibly expensive for the company and involved everybody creatively. The, the building of Dragonlance was saying, oh, this guy's got a world. Let's just use it. Bing. And that's how it started. That's that's actually honestly amazing. Like, it just kind of was like out of the blue. We saw you in the magazine. We want your world. Then you had a telecommute job in the 1980s, which that, that also is awesome. Just kind of from Ontario getting asked these questions and sending them over to Geneva, Wisconsin. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, every week I was just hammering stuff away. And, and putting it into the FedEx, because this is before the Internet. And it was also before conference calling, unless everybody picked up an extension. Unless you did that, there was no way of telecommunicating. So it was like phone calls. And by two or three years later, it was everybody, it seemed, at TSR who wanted to would phone me. 
And again, you know, they knew where to find me. It was a public library. I'd, I'd answer the phone. Good afternoon. Sure. Burbank's public library. Hi, Ed. It's Ed Cook. I need. Oh, OK, sure. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and <laughs> and and you see, the, the thing was, Gary had been the bottleneck for Greyhawk. He was trying to write the game rules that everybody was waiting for. He was trying to run this company, which was mushrooming in size you know, underneath him as D&D became popular. And he was trying to write and publish Greyhawk products. And Greyhawk was the third leg and it had to suffer. So people waited for Greyhawk products and there were never enough. And the whole point of the realms was Ed's got all this stuff. Let's ask him stuff and then let put all the cooks to work at once so Ed won't be the bottleneck. That also means, you know, from the point of view of the company, Ed can't hold us over a barrel, you know, because we're all working on it. And we won't be waiting starved for stuff because they were very concerned about bringing out a product line where one or two things came out and then there was silence. The realms allowed them to bring out tons of stuff just from my generated packages they could hand them to everybody, like give Paul Jaquez, now Janelle Jaquez, um, the stuff that became the Savage Frontier. And he would sit down and wrote a product to do with it. Scott Herring took the Kalamshan stuff and wrote, you know, so everybody was going in all directions at once. And they were bringing out stuff in a, in a huge flood. And at the same time, they were taking stuff they already had, like the de- Desert or Desolation modules, and, and dumping them into the realms and then publishing them too. So they had a complete fast product line. And there were times, um, the year that TSR almost went under and got bought by Wizards, I and my wife were driving 100 miles to work for eight hour workdays and then driving 100 miles home, six, sometimes seven days a week. And at the same time, I was moonlighting and I wrote 11 full-time products that year, which is about twice a full designer's load at TSR. But you see, by then, they bought me a computer. So if I got so tired I didn't remember my own name, and I was typing up something and realized halfway through I was typing it in the wrong file for a different product, I could literally cut and paste and drop it in the other product and say, phew, instead of having to retype it all on a manual typewriter. Yeah. Some of the first stories I ever wrote were on manual typewriter and going back and changing them was a matter of retyping the whole thing. (laughs) So much easier. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And to get my first job at age 14, I had to type 60 words a minute on the manual typewriter. And if you made a mistake, it equaled 10 words. Take 10 words off your total. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. The Dark Ages. And we had to walk uphill both ways, you know. <laughs> yeah, typing fast on those old typewriters isn't easy either. You got to really smack those things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is why, by the way, I didn't ever get carpal tunnel syndrome. Because I would pound those computer keyboards like they were a typewriter. So the keyboards would break, but I'd be fine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's just such a, I want to call it a wholesome start to, to the Forgotten Realms and how you how that became the setting for AD&D. And I guess 
now would be a good time to bring up the world building aspect is that correct me if i'm wrong essentially you built for what you kind of wanted for your campaign your D game that you ran for um for this group of people and then just went from there and i think that's generally how a lot of dms build their world building on for their campaigns is just seeing what's needed seeing what's cool and making something of it for their players well Okay, the realms is a little bit more complicated than that because it precedes the game. That's true. So I was building it for my stories, fictional stories, swords and sorcery stories written starting with a five-year-old kid, me, writing stories. Okay, so I wasn't even thinking of things in a game or campaign, and I wasn't yet trying to match with the races and stats and classes of the game because the game came along later there is a novel by hp lovecraft called the dream quest of unknown kadath it they're, they're they're sometimes called the dreamlands fantasies or randolph carter stories and randolph carter goes to sleep and he goes down through the gates of deeper slumber and so on into this strange world the dreamlands and it is a sort of medievalish fantasy world. And he sees weird traders from afar come out of ships that dock at these various ports. And he just sort of mentions that they're from Lang or whatever. And so I followed that same sort of thing. There are merchant caravans and merchant ships coming from far off. And the people are different in those far off places. And, of course, as per Lovecraft, some of them may not be people at all. You know, they they might be somebody else behind those masks or behind those cowled robes and so on. So I was building a world at first that just sort of said, oh, caravans come from over there. It's this far off country called Thay or this farther off country called Durpar or Roran or... Um, Var the Golden, all these places. And I knew what direction they were and vaguely how far away they were. But the rest of it was terra incognita. I had a little detail area right around me, what you can see and smell and touch, where the stories are happening right now. And that's a sort of vaguely Robin Hood, Sherwood Forest, Crumbling Castles, King Arthur, vaguely european fantasy um which fit with the vaguely the same thing in in dungeons and dragons when it came along but you see my stuff preceded the game but on the other hand i wasn't suspending all the rules of um our world you know water still ran downhill and it ran from the mountains into larger and larger streams rills in rivers to the sea and the seas were salt because that allowed me to use um, enough sort of stuff that was familiar that I wasn't stopping to explain to my readers what every fantasy thing was. It was the difference between having advanced, weird concepts where you have to stop and explain everything and having a character draw a sword. And everybody goes, I know what a sword is. The same thing that in James Bond, he picks up the phone and talks to somebody. Everybody knows what a phone is, you hope. He pulls out a gun and shoots somebody. The readers know what a gun is, you hope. 
you know, uh, otherwise you could actually explain them. And if you want to see a book in which everything's explained, Swiss Family Robinson is a great book for that. You know, Father, how is it that with our comparatively beauty strength, we can, okay, here comes the whole lecture on leaders <laughs> and bullies. It takes three pages, you know. Um, but But the point is, I was using enough of the familiar to make my fantasy world ring true. And to make it ring true, you have to engage all the senses. You have to talk about what things taste like, what they smell like. And to do that as a fiction writer, you want to try stuff. As in, you want to tr- what does it feel like to walk through a graveyard at dawn? What does it feel like to skinny dip in a frozen lake at dawn? Well, if you try doing those things, A, you're crazy, B, you're me, <laughs> and C, you can write about it better than somebody who's never experienced that stuff. So you try eating worms, or you try eating melted cheese, so you know what it smells like, tastes like, so you can write about it. And if you're building the realms and you're trying to make things vivid, both first in your fiction, just with, you know, fiction is curved squiggles of ink on a page. And we, when we read it, use our brains to give them meaning. And then later, sitting around a gaming table and you're trying to explain to people theater of the mind, you're just talking. They're just staring at your your mouth as you explain to them. She's a beautiful lady. You've never seen eyes so strikingly ice blue before or so angry. She rakes you all with a glare and then turns and walks out without a word. What do you do? You see, if I'm trying to explain that stuff to you, it works better the more detail. And it varies from person to person how much detail they want to use. Many gamers would say, why are you publishing all these endless books? Follow. I don't need this. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> then, that, then they're not for you. But for the people who do want to go down that rabbit hole, guess what? The realms works. We have full geology. Everything makes sense. The life cycles, the climate, where crops grow, the whole trade routes. We worked it all out. Really, we have. And unlike most fantasy books, we don't learn where the excrement goes when somebody takes a dump just when the characters need that as an escape route or a way to invade the castle. We work it all out beforehand. We might not, you know, shove it in your noses, but we work it out so we know how it works, so there are no gaps in that. And I think that's what attracted TSR. Oh, my goodness, he's done all the work. Great. We can we can concentrate on stories as in the adventures. Remember, although there were novels from the beginning, it's a gaming company. So they're first and foremost thinking gaming adventures, modules in those days. But we can concentrate on that because he has built the backdrop. We don't have to worry about where that river comes from or where it flows to. He's done all that. Good. We can concentrate on the stories. And there's never enough time and there's never enough word count, particularly in the pre-E days when everything had to be printed. You can't expand a product. There's no web enhancements. There's no Twitter or anywhere else to answer stuff on. It has to be down on the page. When that happens, everybody's overworked. Everybody doesn't have enough space in their product. It's really handy when they all fit together and somebody else has done the work somewhere else. I I have to say that uh, just from my own experience of, of talking to people, um, in the world building communities like that, that 
attention to detail, that level of I, I kind of want to know everything so that way everyone else will will be able to just pick up on it. It's, sure. it's lost on it's lost on a lot of people. You know, I just I always kind of took that for granted. And when I started making my own lore and my own world and working on my own stuff, I was like, well, this is how they do it. Why don't I do that? And working on that and then kind of just assuming that that's what everyone did. It it really I, I got a nice surprise when I, I went out into the gaming world and, and the online communities and being like, yeah, here's like the 10,000 things I just made. And like, you're insane. Like, <laughs> like th th this this is what like all my heroes do, though. This is this is like what what everyone who that I take inspiration from, like, yeah, and. And, and I love that, and it totally took to it. And what you mentioned with, like, oh, I'm going to offhandedly mention that there's, like, this whole empire on the other side of the world, and just, you know, that that's it. Like, I don't need any more. That, that's mm -hmm. good enough. And then one day I'll get to it. And and it really is just kind of lost on everyone. So I, I'll see maps on the internet, and, and there'll be, like, five nations, and I'm like, is, is that the whole world? Like, yeah, you've got, like, exactly. six towns. Are you sure that's the whole world? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. That, that was actually a a funny story when early on in the realms they said okay so have you got a city in this place well <laughs> yeah um <laughs> a bunch of them okay do you have any of them like mapped oh yeah water deeps all mapped and everything oh good send it because we want to do a product in that uh, we're thinking a 64 page product and i said okay this is not the village of hamlet you know a tower and two buildings this is a city a real city and I sent it, and Jeff un unwrapped the package, and then he had 55 pages of the master map of the realms, so he was a little forewarned, but he had even more pages of Waterdeep. And because I was taking 11 by 17 pieces of paper, which I'd drawn building outlines on, and then photocopying them, on a photocopier that I knew distorted everything around the edge of the platen, there was a huge map guide that I hand drew. This map overlaps, this map overlaps, this map. So all the weird distorted stuff would be in a street or alleyway. So you get buildings that would ma actually match up. And so he had to sit down with several rolls of sellotape and tape this whole thing together. When he was finished, Karen Boomgarden couldn't go to the ladies' washroom. Because she'd come out of her cubicle and start to walk there, and the whole floor would be covered with this taped together map. And he'd say, "Don't walk on that. Don't don't walk on that." And she'd say, uh, "Jeff," and he'd go, "Go the other way." You know, <laughs> because they had they had no idea they were going to get this map, and that's how we actually got the city system product. Apparently, uh, a TSR vice president came marching around the corner just trying to get from a to b in the in the former q-tip factory and started walking on it uh and jeff said don't, don't walk on the map and he looked down and said what's this and he goes oh my god this is so cool because they'd never before seen a map that literally stretched you know 30 40 feet all with buildings on it it was like whoa so yeah the the the, the vastness of scale can sometimes trigger our honest awe. And to me, it wasn't like I wasn't trying to make it big or outdo anyone. I just started drawing buildings. And whenever the uh, player characters went anywhere in Waterdeep, uh, in those days, the only figurines you could easily get 
where I was, were either 54 millimeter lead soldiers, too big, or these little waxy yellow plastic airfix minis uh, that were various war things or for model railroading sets. And so I just assumed that a brownstone apartment building in, in Waterdeep, the equivalent, you know, a three-story rectangular block building, the scale I would use would be big enough I could put the base of one figure in that building. Just It would just fit. And I could say, the party's in there. Or the watch patrol that's chasing you is in there having drinks right now. So that that was the scale I did. And I just drew streets and blocks as they went places in the city. And it just sort of grew like a real city would until it was huge. And so although I can wax poetic and lyrical about world building, because I've done it so long now, that we're, we're talking over 50 years of world building and we're talking over 30 worlds it, it i can make it sound grand but for the realms i just i made it up as i went along <laughs> i was just i was just handy in that i had a huge library of my dad's to draw on i had a very creative family we were into interested in a lot of things like we sang together in a choir and so on so i had music I went to very good schools and there was lots going on. Uh, I devoured all the books in my father's den. So I was interested in a lot of things. So everything sort of hung together as an imaginary world. I didn't have any, you know, rivers that turned and ran uphill or, you know, <laughs> the edge of the world that you sail off it and fall. You know, I, I was able to intuitively and instinctively do it and not screw up major league so that, um, inconsistencies didn't start, start creeping in until lots of people were at work in the realms and didn't communicate with each other years later. Until then, you know, everything was hanging together, which is, you know, not much of an achievement when you're the only creator, unless, you know, unless you happen to be insane or schizophrenic, you should be able to get along with yourself and talk to yourself and keep things coherent. Uh, one, one could always hope. Um <laughs> As a quick aside, um, every time I ever hear anyone like mention Jeff Grubb or tell a story about him, I I just think that like he just is eternally having a bad day and just kind of like needs a pat on the shoulder. Like <laughs> I can just imagine him swearing as he's taping this like thirty foot map together, going wait wait which which piece is where. Yeah, oh, no. well, <laughs> Jeff is a very nice guy, very smart, very long suffering, sees the humor in everything. And he very early learned to hand my packages, um, which were wrapped and taped and then wrapped in foil and then put in baggies and then taped again and then taped with fiber tape and so on to get them through customs for, for two reasons. Because I attended a seminar at, I think, Gen Con 17 in Milwaukee in which Steve Winter, who was an editor for TSR, had held up an eight-inch floppy disk when they really were floppy, and it was stapled to the printout of the guy's module and said, never do this. Because, of course, they couldn't get data off wherever the staples were. Oh, um, my God. Well, the other thing was I worked in a public library, and one of the jobs we had in the public library for us, lower dog's bodies, um, was to handle the mail, which meant... I took the outgoing mail, 
and ran it through a Pitney Bowes um, postal meter that was supposed to lick and stick the flaps of the envelopes, but didn't. It just put water all over the envelope, and then you had to lick and stick it yourself. And the other part of the meter, the, the reason why you had to use the meter is instead of putting a stamp on it, it put a this much postage paid ink thing on it that the library was paying for. And then you had to cart them all over to the post office. And then you had to bring back a canvas mailbag of Her Majesty's mail or several canvas mailbags. And what you discovered early on is that the postal guys um, threw these in puddles that our driveway at the library literally um, had these, it had, it had been done hot, fresh asphalt years ago, and then they parked a heavy truck on it. So where the tires of the truck were, there were four oh. little ponds. So these, the postal guys would throw the mailbags into a pond. And they would be submerged underwater. And you'd open the mailbag and everything in this would be wet and dripping. So I was convinced that they would handle all the stuff that had to go across the border to this exotic far country called the United States of America, they would definitely find some bigger puddles along the way. And what Jeff would receive would be a limp disintegrating paper dish rag. So to avoid that, I wrapped everything in plastic and taped it shut, pulled plastic bags off things, wrapped them in it, wrapped it a second time, wrapped it a third time and taped over all the holes. And this had two things. First of all, my stuff never got ruined. And secondly, it never got opened by customs because they would start opening it to see what was they get about three layers in and they'd say, Oh, the hell with it. There's gotta be an easier package. And then, and then they, <laughs> so my stuff got through, but you see Jeff's way of dealing in that would be to find the newest person hired by TSR and say, Oh, oh I, I'm really busy. Could you open this for me? And then the person would start opening it in their cubicle. And halfway through of cursing and swearing and slicing and cutting and and getting paper cuts and and they they realize that a stealthy audience had arrived from all the other cubicles, stood on chairs and were looking over the walls of their cubicle and trying not to giggle. <laughs> so the first day routine should have been welcome to TSR. Here's your machete. Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> TSR was a crazy. TSR was a family dysfunctional family but it was a family and they would do things like jeff grubb day where everybody would wear a button saying hi i'm jeff grubb so that the poor guy who'd just been hired you know or or there was an article once in which somebody in the gaming industry said that um zeb cook was really running tsr and we were all all of us who worked for tsr were zeb's pawns and except there was a misspelling in the article. And at one point it said prawns and <laughs> somebody else oh, no. had said there, everybody at TSR is crazy. It must be because there's something in the water. Maybe it's radioactive. So Jeff took his faithful button machine and made up many, many buttons for people to pin on themselves. that says, hi, I'm one of Zeb's radioactive prawns. <laughs> so they could all wear them. <laughs> oh, that sounds like an amazing environment. Oh, my oh, God. Um, Jeff had to go to a convention once, and he was ordered to go downstairs and tell them to print up business cards for him because he would have to hand out business cards. So he said, OK. And he went downstairs and decided to make up the business cards 
saying that he was a senior designer, which was fine, except Zeb Cook came running up and said, hey, when did you get to be senior designer? <laughs> so um, much later, the state of Wisconsin, where Lake Geneva was um, situated, said, oh, well, you know, you have to have job classifications for all the people working for you. You know, it's state law. So they very quickly had to come up with what's the difference between a designer and a senior designer. So Jeff looked up at them for a minute and he says, oh, senior designers are allowed to run with scissors. Oh, OK. So they typed that into the official job description. Allowed to run with scissors. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> so there you go. There's the difference between a senior designer and a designer. Oh, it was a, it was a really fun place. Um. I love visiting it. It was like, ooh, all these, these are my people. They're all crazy. <laughs> Different flavors are crazy, but crazy. But a delightful flavor nonetheless. So so that was that was a TSR. How did you know the, the D&D crew change when you guys switched over to Watsi when, when you went to Wizards of the Coast after they got bought? Did you visit them, I assume, less often? Probably was a little farther away. Oh, yeah, because I could drive. It was a long drive, you know, from where I live in, in southern Ontario. And I would drive for about four hours, maybe six, depending on the traffic, cross customs at Detroit, and then drive for another 12 hours to go around Chicago and, and either to Milwaukee or to Lake Geneva. Um, but, yes, you were never driving, at least if you were me, you were never driving uh, out to Seattle. Because that's a two-week drive, and I've never had that much time off work. So um, I would go out there when they flew me out there for a summit, which they they did on two occasions. So I think I visited there three times in all. Paizo had me out for PaizoCon as well. And, of course, what that means is I phone Jeff and we go to dinner, you know. <laughs> and and it, because gaming is all about the friends you make in gaming and hanging out yeah. with them. Wizards is very different. It's very West Coast, as opposed to TSR was very Midwestern. It was very white, sort of middle class, rural, and it was a different time. They were very tight laced and very worried about teenage mothers from heck and the satanic panic. You know, at one point they even took demons and devils out of the game and renamed them, you know. So that holy rollers couldn't wave the monster manual from the pulpit and say, the word devil is in this book 36 times. You know, they were oh, just, gosh. Like, yeah, literally. So they took every mention out of it and you'd say, why would they do that? Well, they wanted to sell some books in the southern half of the United States in the Bible Belt. So you do the appeasement. So that was a very different time. Um, gaming had come fr from war gaming. So it was usually overweight, middle-aged white guys with body hair and facial hair. Very um, accurate. Yeah. So there were fewer women, um, <laughs> except as girlfriends or wives sort of thing. But that wasn't my personal experience up in Canada in my little group. Um, but it was the when I went to Gen Con, I could see that it was, I mean, there were one or two black guys, Mike Pondsmith and one or two others, they stood out in those days. They don't anymore. It's everybody. It's the United Nations now. Yeah, it's great. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. It's it's vastly preferable to what it was. No, it, it definitely has become so 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 much 
more than what it was. It used to just be kind of like exactly like you said, like just kind of like big white guys, and that that's like kind of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And and now everyone's into it, even people who you never would have imagined like just by personality that would like D and D are now like, Oh, I listen to critical role every week. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my first Gen Con was Gen Con eight and then 13 and then 17. And I attended every single Gen Con after that from 17, right up till three, four years ago when um my wife wasn't well enough to leave anymore. So I stopped attending Gen Con regularly. And during that time, that span of attending Gen Cons, gamers who I had met in early Gen Cons showed me their kids, and then their kids showed me their kids. So three generations have come to my signings and to say hi and let's talk about the realms. Yeah, so during that three generations, the gaming public has changed and broadened and that's also, I think, why we see things like Stranger Things and more and more cool nerd stuff being made into movies like the Marvel Universe and so on. It's because the kids of my generation now run movie studios and they get to make the stuff they wanted to see when they were kids and nobody would make. It's like, OK, this is my movie studio right now. <laughs> We're going to do this, you know, and and I, I, that's why I think we have a golden age now. It certainly feels like it. Um, As someone that just kind of creates content for myself and for my personal use, whenever I kind of look on social media, there's just this cropping up of different indie creators, creating settings, creating systems, just everyone's doing a bit of world building, whether they say it's world building or not. So it's it's amazing kind of that I would say progress over these decades. Oh yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. Everything builds on what comes before. And, and, you know, nowadays when I open a five E book, um, I can point to this, that, and the other thing. And I said, I remember when I created that, you know, in 1975 or whatever, you know, but it's come such a long way. And so many people have, um, worked on it since and ripped it in this direction or that direction so yeah i created it you know if if you if you have a crawling claw or a, a dracolich or an alhoon a litholich or anything else like that in your D game i created that but it has been it has come such a long way since then so many other people have touched them and changed them and um done their own riff on them and that is what is so cool about the game we we share our imaginations. And when you're world building, you're always trying to provide something that supports the story that is unfolding in front of you now. But if you do it right, the world has enough depth to it that you can tell another story, a different story, yet another different story, another one. They can crisscross. So in the same way that, you know, George Railroad Martin had this war wait 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 wait. did you just say railroad martin yeah that's what we always used to call it yeah yeah sorry that just took me by surprise please continue no no uh, i knew george years and years ago when he um was writing with lisa tuttle doing windhaven and so on long before the 
uh, but Westeros. But the point I was going to make is that um, he's telling the story of this war in the Game of Thrones. But to set up that war, there's all the Targaryen stuff from years earlier, which he which he's now telling in Fire and Blood. And before that, there was the time of Duncan Egg, you know, the sort of Arthurian knight's time, even before that. And they all lead to each other. And it's all the same world, and each thing shapes the world a little bit more. And so that he's telling a different story in the later one or the early one, but they are still related. The one does affect the other. For some perspective, would you say that stories like that provide a better um, landscape for the setting and kind of connectivity between the different stories than, say, something between The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion? The Silmarillion is very biblical. Uh, The Silmarillion wasn't meant to be a for-us narrative. It was the professor working things out for himself and writing the backstory. And Christopher Tolkien, his son, and Guy Gavriel Kay, working as the sort of amanuensis, dug through his garage and all the notes and put it together and then published it for us. So it's sort of like more of the appendices at the back of The Lord of the Rings, the stuff that um, some authors would argue uh, Tolkien himself argued in his essay on fairy stories, where he's like, he he says, leave them wanting more. You know, they should feel like there's something over that hill, but don't show them. Um, There is a difference between what you want to have your big story and then what I'm doing in Endless Realms source books, where I'm telling you what sort of ale and cheese you can have in this tavern. But we need that stuff in any role playing game because the players can go in any direction. In a movie or in a novel, the author makes the choices of where characters go. They can't say, wait a minute, I want to look around and see what's behind this building. And as a result, the author can leave it as a Hollywood backdrop. You know, Whereas if you're designing for games, it has to be a real building. It all has to make sense. And the world has to work. But yeah, it does shape the world in a different way. And it is possible to world build on a very superficial level, because you know you're never going back there. If you're writing a science fiction short story for a magazine in which at the end of the story, they blow up the galaxy, what is the point in detailing the galaxy? But if you want to set a long running series of short stories that you're going to work on most of your life there, you don't want to blow up the galaxy and you do want to detail it and you do want to have it make sense. And I think that's the difference between the necessary world building for a role-playing game and a straight-ahead na- narrative where you can you can cheat on the narrative. You can rush the action past something and not allow the reader to go back and look at it. They can reread those passages, but they can't go back and pick something up and taste it or put it in their pocket and look at it later. You rush them past it. I guess to somewhat loop back to Forgotten Realms and... Mm-hmm world building and you mentioned uh earlier in this uh in this in the podcast that they wanted a setting that they could essentially plop other pieces of their own world building in and it makes sense 
So in that regard, has there been something that someone else has written that you've either just absolutely loved that got put in Forgotten Realms or something that just stuck out to you as really, really good? There are lots of good things in the realms because there's lots of things that I wouldn't have thought of. And therefore, they make the world richer and I can enjoy it more because I get surprised. Um, naturally, as a human being, I am tickled pink when something comes to life that I that matches my own conception of it. Uh, when Elaine Cunningham started writing about Erolyn and Danilo in Elf Shadow, she read all the stuff about Waterdeep very carefully, and and she got it. She captured things. She brought Elaith, the serpent, alive just so perfectly. I felt like it was real. It was what I'd written come to life. And that was just a delight. Um, when Bob Salvatore described what a drow city was like in Homeland, that delighted me in another way. That was something I could see where he was coming from because I had played in all the giant and then drow and then Queen of the Dean Boy Pitts modules. So I, I saw where he came from for that, but he brought it to life so beautifully. And that's a place I wouldn't have gone by myself. That's something I wouldn't have conceived of. That's something I wouldn't have brought into life. Now, I was then tasked with doing the Menzo Branson box set and bringing it to life in a full-on game thing with maps and everything. But I wouldn't have thought of that myself. So that was a delightful addition to the realms. Uh, what Jeff and his wife, Kate Novak, did from the beginning with with um, the Wyvern Spurs, Joji Wyvern Spur and so on, and then what he did in As Your Bonds, those are takes on the realms I would not have taken. So those are all delights. And then later on, we've had some absolutely superb writers from Lynn Abbey to Aaron Evans, um, from Eric Scott to B to Richard Lee Byers, um, Rosemary Jones, everybody has like stepped in and written delightful things that as a reader, I just sit back and love to have them on my bookshelf, love to reread them. And they add a richness to the realms I wouldn't have put there, couldn't have put there. So it's the, that's where I find the delight. It's making friends in gaming. It's creating stuff with them, riffing off each other and I have two friends, Eric Boyd in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and George Crashos, who is as far away from us as you can get in southern Australia, who have for years made a career of taking bits of realms lore that other people have written that contradict each other and explaining away the contradictions by creating new lore that bridges it. And it's just a delight to read all the stuff. And we work on stuff steadily. Right now, we're working on developing lexicons for the tongue of dwarves, the tongue of elves, the tongue of dragons. You know, we just we keep on expanding all the stuff so that the richness will be there for people when they want to use it in their campaigns. And that, I mean, that richness is is definitely what kind of the realms has come to personify, like the depth and breadth that you could go. It, it is the setting that you can do any type of game in, you know, precluding that you pretend Spelljammer exists or it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. But it, <laughs> it, it is, it is this detail that I don't think any other setting 
comes close to emulating. Like, it just... I mean, how can you? It's been worked on for decades with dozens of people, and I'm sure so much of it coming from from the source that is you and... The greatest world-building collab ever. Yeah, it it really has kind of become that. (laughs) Yeah, it probably is. And it's 50 years, 55 years, more than that, of just steady work. And nobody else has put that amount of time in. Uh, Professor Tolkien almost did, but you got to remember, he had a, a 16-year gap, you know, which literally he left the, um, the fellowship standing around the tomb in Moria because life life took over, you know. He mm-hmm. wanted to get married, all that stuff. He, w- he was busy ascending at Oxford, all the, all the rest of it, and doing other things. So, and, and yes, I do other things as well, but um, I have worked on the realms every day of my life for 50-odd years now. And a lot of other talented people from 1987 on, or sort of the second half of 1986 on, if they were at TSR, have pitched in and done their own things and done computer games and done novels and uh, worked on screen treatments and everything. So, um, yeah, we have that. That's what you achieve if you just keep at it. Now, it's more detail than a lot of people want, but that's not the point. The point is they know it's there if they come, if they have the need for it or have the taste for it and decide to come for it. They know it's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, we're now at the stage where a lot of it is out of print or inaccessible or it was on a website that you now can't find anymore um, or the links are broken or whatever because so much time has passed. But we also have tons and tons of fans at sites like, say, Candlekeep who, who dredge up stuff and and find the links you know <laughs> or restore the links or or tell people oh that you can find that on page 48 you know and the, there's the fr wiki and so on and and it's all people trying to go on using the realms regardless of edition regardless of their age regardless of who they're gaming with and regardless of the people they're gaming with whether they own all the stuff because some of it is expensive or hard to get now because it's been going for so long, but they can always go out on the interwebs and ask something like, okay, the blade summers, can you give me the first names of some of the blade summer nobles and, and when were they born and when did they die? And people will tell you because someone cares because it's the realms and it's to them. It's sort of, they know it's not real. They're not crazy, but they want it to be real. So they care about it. So they go down the rabbit hole on designing the blade sembers and stuff like that, and they're happy to help someone else. It is a real fun collaboration. In the same way that um, Lovecraft's writings, because he wrote letters to all of his friends, and this was entertainment for them, Clark Ashton Smith and Frank Belknap Long and August Derleth and so on, and it, it sort of it broke copyright. It preceded copyright, so everybody can tell about the great old ones and so on. It's sort of a, everybody can play with those toys now in the same way everybody can play with the realms. They may not be able to publish in the realms, except in certain limited ways, but they that doesn't stop them using it at home. And there are tons and tons of people who've written realms novels that will never be published, but they still wrote them because they wanted to because the world mattered to them and they brought the world alive while they were sitting there at the keyboard. It's another way of playing particularly if you don't have anybody to play D&D with. 
And there are there are people in the world who have nobody to play D and D with, and they now have a the internet and Twitch TV and streams and so on to watch and to play with other people. They can use Discord, etc. But they didn't used to be able to. So if they were out on a lonely rural farm somewhere, they might be sitting at a typewriter typing up their own realm story and making the world come alive for themselves while they were working on the story. I know that because I used to get lots and lots of letters, good old physical letters in the old days when that's all there were, saying, what are some flowers that would be on the ground in a garden in Daggerdale in the summer? Okay, what are the last flowers that would last until autumn? And I'd say, oh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then they'd say, I'm writing an, a story. Oh, cool. You know, send it to me when you're done. You know, I want to read it, which is the delight of the realms. I, I can honestly only imagine how awesome that, that feeling is that like, oh, I made this world and now it means stuff to other people so much though so that they're just of their own volition writing stories and making up characters and places and and making it come alive to them. Oh that, that sure. Just... And and I've been asked to marry people. Officiate oh. at their weddings. Yeah. I've been asked to um I've been asked what where I came for the name came up with the name Laryl or Illustrial, you know, because somebody wants to name their baby girl that and you know that that is such a cool feeling no <laughs> oh there are there are um flarels and illustrials and storms running around the world right now because of my characters there are also storms running on the world because of x-men but you know, <laughs> some of them some of them are mine not literally mine but i mean <laughs> <laughs> and that feels really cool you know and and to I remember um, sitting next to um, a gorgeous lady on a plane flying to a convention, and she was having a bit of trouble putting her passport away because it didn't neatly fit in the breast pocket of the smart jacket that she you know, was wearing at the time. And she's trying to fold it away. And, and in the end, because I'm sitting in the next seat, I said, can I hold that for you? Will you do that? Yeah, OK. So I'm holding her jacket while she's putting the passport away. And I see that she's named after one of the realm's characters. And I think, do I tell her? <laughs> no, 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 no. Not unless it comes up, you know, like she talks to me. Because sometimes you ignore your seatmate for the entire flight. You know, you put on your head. Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> but I mean, I, I'm not going to. Hi, I'm the creepy guy who does that, you know. Uh, so, but, but, it, but it was such a cool well, feeling to think that this. This woman is named, and it's got to be, because it's one of my names that I coined, and nobody else has ha had had it before. And it's like, this is so cool. It is like, hi, I'm now immortal. No, I'm not. I'm going to die like everybody else. But I have left my mark on the world. Cool! <laughs> and I did it in a way that didn't cost money, and I didn't kill people. <laughs> like i didn't have a war you know i didn't conquer you know yeah anyway so it's it's really cool it is that that physical embodiment of your legacy that's just it's astounding mm -hmm. it is it is a really fun feeling and at the same time there's this 
weird inner pride. I mean, you can't take, you didn't father that person. You're not responsible for whether they're, you know, good or bad as a person. But you say, oh, they're they're bearing that name. I did that. Neat. (laughs) It's pretty awesome. Um, So as a quick transition, I guess, speaking of things you you have done, um, what are you currently working on? You mentioned that you still work in the realms, and I know that you have some other projects, like a book, I believe, you just put out for um, Pendlehaven. Oh, yes. Okay. Andrew Volkoskis, um, who is Pendlehaven, um, publishes a role-playing game called Fate of the Norns which is a Viking role-playing game, and it's really cool because you cast runes to do stuff. You have a bag of runes, and you cast them. Okay. Um, And I worked on the story part of a monster book, which is, if if you're thinking of it in Forgotten Realms terms, it's the equivalent of ecologies. Okay? The ecology of these various monsters. Except I didn't do the ecology part, James, who lives north of me in Peterborough, did that. Um, Michelle Franklin and I did stories for each monster. And usually it's a third-person narration of an, a mon- a, an encounter in a fight with a monster. But sometimes it's the monster talking in first person. And sometimes it's a first person, you know, I am Vorstag, son of Vorstag. Let me tell you about the time we fought a Kelpie or whatever, you know. And what happened is Andrew is putting all of the um, Nordic monsters into his game. And he's he is going through all of the myths and legends from all of the various traditions, deciding where when they contradict what what is going to work in his game and detailing it up. And there are three versions of that book and one of them is 5e for D&D one of them is for his fate of the norn system and one of them is just the fiction no gaming stuff and it's just Michelle and my stories so that we did that then I wrote a novel for him it's called the one-eyed king and it isn't out yet and it's set in a in a city Athcliath which is Dublin it really was called Athcliath briefly, and the Vikings really did conquer it in history briefly. And because the novel set there, Andrew and I were at work on something else, game-related, to do with that. And at the same time, I'm also working on a Rocket Age adventure for the Rocket Age game by Ken Spencer of Why Not Games. And Rocket Age is sort of like the pulp science fiction future of the 1930s that never came to be. You know, when we all waved ray guns around and we wore glass goldfish bowl helmets when we went into space, and that's that and leather armor was sort of all we wore and we didn't blow up. And this is all in the solar system, and some of the Nazis escaped and they're they're hiding out on Venus or maybe Mars or whatever. And there are there are civilizations on Jupiter and Mars somewhat of civilization on Venus, and the whole thing's set in the solar system. Well, I'm writing Bold Brigands of the Belt for his Kickstarter. I'm late because I had heart surgery, but I'm, that's what I'm working on right now. And it's literally an adventure in space where you go into the asteroid field and discover that there are pirates there. You discover it the hard way. 
<laughs> and and I'm also at work on tons of other stuff. As I talk to you now, my computer desktop is just full of projects that are upcoming that I have to get to work on sometime. I can never die because <laughs> there's so much work I've promised to do. <laughs> you, you'll finally give out when uh, when you finally have nothing else to do, which probably is not going to ever happen. So I guess we got it you for a like while some... yet. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's the whole idea to be, you know, like Wiley e. Coyote never fell until he <laughs> realized he'd run off the cliff. You just keep mm-hmm. running. You can still keep running as long as you don't look down. Well, that's me. I just keep running. <laughs> It's like uh, you'll get a letter from Wizard saying, oh, we're done with Forgotten Realms. And you'll just like look down. And you're like, oh, there's no blood left in my body. And I don't have legs. Like, <laughs> like, I'm a withered mummy? Like, wait. And then just it's over. And, you know, that'd be a couple hundred years in the future. When oh, that, they would, finally that would be on. cool. That would be cool. <laughs> I was thinking I'd be a withered dotty, but, oh, a withered mummy. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but no. Did... character into Forgotten Realms or something. Oh, yes. Sir. <laughs> oh, I did that years ago. And it's not oh. a it's... Oh yes, I'm in the realms. Um, as there's a character called the Questmaster, and that's me. I'm not Elminster, although I play Elminster a lot of conventions. That was because TSR asked me to, you know. Um, Elminster is not me, and and people say, oh, sure he is. He's your Mary Sue, you know, long white beard, bloody. And I go, I was five years old when I created Elminster. I did not have a long white beard then. <laughs> I, was a I grew kid. into Elminster. Yes, I grew into <laughs> Elminster. Because you think this away. form was an accident? This is peak perfection. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's all. It's all. I have that. And by the way, that's the secret to not bogging down and not getting writer's block. If I ever slow down on something, I've got six other projects open on the desktop. I just jump into another one and keep writing. Yeah, I yeah. do this thing. That definitely helps. Yeah. Always trying to work on something. And if you're at a block, I, I just I move on to something else and try to keep moving because the, the worst thing to happen is to just stop. Yeah, exactly. Because you might get to like it. You know, yep. you might say, oh, it's time to stop. Oh, good. I can make that recipe. I can watch that TV show. Oh, and there's this other movie I haven't seen yet. Oh, and then you know, two two weeks have passed, and you're still sitting in front of the TV set saying, "Are there any chocolates left in that box?" You know, <laughs> when you could have been spending two weeks writing another novel. So, what what is your turnaround time on the average novel? Does does it vary widely, or or do you have it like down to a science? No, no, it depends. Everything varies with the project, and it. Uh, it varies depending on a lot of things. The conditions under which I'm writing the novel, what else is happening in my life at the time, um, how the novel is being contracted and written. Because I've had novels like Elminster, the Making of a Mage. Um, Brian Thompson was head of TSR's book department. He decided we'd all have iconic characters. Bob would have Drist, I'd have Elminster. And he said, "Okay, here's the title of the next book you'll write. It's called Elminster, the Making of a Mage. I want to see Elminster be all four character classes in D&D, the base character classes. That's what he has to be in the novel. Tell me his life story, but don't I don't care. So don't, you know, keep it action. And I said, oh, I have to jump through hoops and make him all four different character classes. 
can he be both genders too? And he goes, oh, that sounds cool. Sure. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and I wrote that book in 16 days. Holy sh! Because I was, remember I told you about the 100 mile commute to work and back? Yeah. Well, in yeah. those days, I had weekends. So eight two-day weekends in a row. <laughs> and one of them had to be used for all the editing and so on and reading through it, making sure that I hadn't fallen asleep at the computer keyboard and hit the D, 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 D key, you know, um, that sort of stuff. Um, so that's how quickly it was written. And then it got rammed right into print because they needed it right then. But that also meant I couldn't write slow, thoughtful, introspective stuff because I didn't have time. I had to keep the action running. The honest answer to you is if I want to write a novel and enjoy writing the novel, these days, it's three months to write a novel. You can take longer. You can spread that three months out over a longer period of time. But to write a, a proper full-length novel, 120,000 words or more, to think about it, to populate it with characters that you like, to do enough world building that this is a novel in either a new setting that you're going to go back to, so you need it to be coherent and have depth, or it's adding to an existing series and therefore an existing setting. It's three months worth of work. Now, what usually happens in the popular traditional publishing industry is books take a lot longer because the editors want you to change things. Your agent wants you to change things. Then they want to sit on it for a bit. Then you see, and then the actual process of shepherding a book into print takes a lot longer. At the large New York publishing houses, it's usually a two-year wait to get to the next open slot in their lineup. So unless the book is topical, like those instant books they used to write years ago, like 90 Minutes at Entebbe or whatever, which were based on, they were nonfiction books based on real-world dramatic events. Unless it was a book like that, which could bump other books that were on the publishing schedule, take their press time, unless that it's usually a two-year or two-and-a-half-year or longer cycle. But the actual writing of a book, for me, is usually around three months. And then I move on to the next one. And then I move on to the next one. If I'm self-pubbing, I could probably do three months of writing and then a month of messing around doing layout and InDesign and, you know, making sure the PDF displays right and all that fun stuff that I don't know how to do because I'm a Luddite, you know. Uh, <laughs> so it's going to take longer than it should. Whereas in the old days with the very simple editing programs that existed back then, um, when I was, you know, being a journalism student and I would write up my column, I would lay it out and I would dump, pour it into the electronic form all in the same go. But things have moved on and I haven't because I've been too busy world building, game designing and writing fiction to keep current with the program. So I know what they're called. I know how expensive they are. I know what their icons look like on the desktop. And that's about it. Because I've been busy with his other stuff. Man, I, I I have to say that that's actually really impressive. The 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 idea of just like putting out that much content that quickly and and oh, kind yes. of having it down um, to knowing knowing what what you can expect for 
for how long it'll take you to uh, well, come out. Here's the thing. It's not an arms race. You know, you you don't yeah. get to, to put on the cover Zorro's Revenge by Ed Greenwood. And then in brackets, best thing I could do in three days, guys. <laughs> you know, you don't get to do that. What you get to do is put out your book and people say, God, this one was really lousy. Well, yeah, because I had three days to do it in. But but you don't want ever to be in that situation. And of course, I have put out books that I look back on on it now and I go, oh, gosh, what? <laughs> no. but it's also like I got a lot of work and I I was given a lot of assignments uh, and because I could write quickly and people needed me to yeah. um, take them out of a jam. I have literally been given the thing where, okay, so-and-so just ghosted on us for this thing. We've got this piece of cover art. We've got this half finished story by this uh, writer. Can you ghostwrite the rest of it? So in his style to match this piece of art and could I have it by Thursday? Sure. No problem. Are you going to pay me? Oh, good. Then the answer is yes, you know, <laughs> and that, that, because it's it's a fun challenge. Yeah. Okay. It's 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 something I haven't done before. It's an exercise. Um, I may be terrible at it, and I certainly don't want that to become the norm because I want to tell my own stories more than I want to rescue somebody else's half finished, half baked thing. But it it's a new thing to try a new experience. So I'm not burning out and I'm not getting bored because I'm doing new and different things all the time. It also means the worlds I'm working in aren't always the same. I really don't care at the end of the day, if a book was written fast or slow, I care about the book. And yeah. if there are some gorgeous books that I've read from people and they tell me it took me 16 years to write that book, it's going to take me another 16 to write the next one. I will say, please take the 16. I want to read the next one. This was great. So the fact that I can write fast is just my good my good luck, my good fortune. It's not something I can pat myself on the back about or or sort of take take praise for or be proud of. It's just I can do it. I I just want to read. I'm a greedy reader. And I'm a greedy gamer. I want to play great games and I want to read good books. And if it takes somebody eight or nine years of agony to turn out that book, thank you very much for taking the eight or nine years of agony. It's wonderful. Can I have the next one, please? <laughs> you know, I'm, I am yeah. a greedy, insatiable reader, but I totally understand that not everybody writes at that rate and they shouldn't. Um, the, the delight of all this is that we're all different. Otherwise, it would be an incredibly boring world and there'd be very few jobs for game designers or writers because we would be waiting for the incumbent game designer slash writer to die. So we could all move one step up in the queue because that there'd be this limited audience. We'd all be expecting the same thing. The fact that we're all different and we all write wildly different stuff. That's where the delight is. And when I get bored with, you know, ice cream, I can have steak. And when I get bored with steak, I can have roast eel. Ugh. <laughs> Quite frankly, though, it's in, it's kind of a relief to hear that, not the part where someone has to die for um, someone <laughs> else to step up, of course. But um, I am I personally am not a prolific writer, nor am I a quick writer. But it's intimidating to see people that can churn out books and content on a daily, weekly, yearly basis just 
oodles of content and feeling, I guess, I don't know if that's imposter syndrome at this point, but like <laughs> feeling that whatever ideas I might have because I'm taking too long or I'm doing my own thing, trying to get it on paper, I guess, digital paper, whatever it's called now, uh, that might not be worthy of an audience. So hearing that to be able to at least go at it because everyone has their own process, it's, it's actually, it's nice to hear, especially mm. from someone of, of your success. Yeah, and I work with a lot of different authors doing um, publishing too. And yeah, everybody's got their own process. Everybody works at a different speed. Um, and yeah, the, the big thing, you know, for people out there that are, you know, just getting into it or, um, you know, eager to get, you know, their own work out there is not to feel like you have to write, you know, at a certain speed or something. You know, it's the end quality that's the most important thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and frankly, a lot of the stuff I've had to do over the years have been crazy things that uh, crazy conditions. I mean, that I should have said no to, you know, sane people would say no to. Uh, <laughs> and, and there are times when I I've looked back at stuff we've done. Um, Hollywood stuff is very much like this because it's almost always a case of too many cooks spoil the broth. You know, there's always too mm -hmm. many people changing things. And, and I have actually literally had conversations where we really like this story, but we need to change all the female characters to guys and we need to change all the male characters to monsters. OK, that sounds very interesting, but it's not my story anymore. It's a different story now, you know, and and then you realize that after you've agreed or not agreed to that and leave the room, it's going to change again. And then again, and then again, and then you think, well, at least I'll be surprised when it hits the screen because <laughs> it's not going to bear any relation to what I wrote. <laughs> and that can be a good thing or it can be a incredibly frustrating thing when you want to bring this story to the screen, not everybody else's take on this story, you know, which is why it's usually more um satisfying not necessarily financially but um creatively to write your own story in isolation and and then self-publish it so you don't have to change it for anybody and if when you're writing you're looking at what you're working on and everybody around you that you see on twitter on the amazon stuff in the bookstore whatever seems to be so much better than you ignore that your voice is every bit as good as everybody else's you may not accomplish with it what that superb writer over there or this superb writer over here did in that thingy but you might on your next one and you certainly won't on your next one if you don't write this one and get better at it so do it and and that's that's the way you have to go through life you can't go through life measuring yourself against others or at least if you do you're setting yourself up for misery and i buy the spectrum anthologies every year there's a spectrum the best in contemporary fantastic art blah, blah, blah. and it's gorgeous art but i'm not going to sit down with a spectrum book in my hand and be inspired by it if i sit down with it open it and say oh i can't I can't paint that well. Oh, I can't draw that well. Oh, geez, how did they do that? I've got to sit down with it going, oh, look at that. Oh, I've got an idea for a story now. 
that's the way you have to approach life too. I mean, it's the old thing of, you know, when you, when you're a little kid that you're not going to be the best hockey player or the astronaut that goes the furthest or the football player that makes the most money, you're almost certainly not even going to get noticed by most people. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You make the best of it that you can. And it's the same thing with world building. You tell your story and you constantly look at what other writers do and see what works and what doesn't work. But don't look at what other writers do and say, oh, I could never do that that well. Oh, oh, geez, why am I even bothering? Look, that's so good. I can never match that. Well, yeah, guess what? That writer might get run over by a bus tomorrow. So there'll be no more stories from them. And there you are, waiting in the wings with your story. <laughs> but not if you haven't written it. Yeah, and I think looking at um, like financial success as a bar for creative success is the wrong way to go about it too. Because there's a lot of stuff out there that you know sells great and gets made in movies, stuff like that. And some of those stories are actually trash. And mm-hmm. there's great yeah. stuff that never gets found. So don't don't look at financial success as a, a measure of quality of your work. Um, yeah, you know, certainly you know, not in our industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely not for us. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's not the bar for success. I think the bar for success is just if somebody reads your story and then turns around and says, you know, hey, this is really cool. I really like this. That's the bar for success. Yeah, that's right. Um, first of all, it's the only way you can measure success in in the fields we toil in because. Most of us don't make money or much money, you know, so you're if you think, hey, I'm going to be a writer. And like all those writers in the Hollywood movies, I'm going to have my own private jet, you know, and four mansions to jet around to. Really? Because I don't know any writers who are like that. Any of them. that includes Stephen King and so on. Um, they might have two or three houses if they're lucky, you know. They don't have a private jet, or if they do, they're crazy to to spend money like that because the next book might not be a success. You know, the, when you're writing, every, it's it's like being a baseball player who is expected to hit a home run every time they step up to the plate. They don't care about the success of your last book. If it was a home run, then are you going to hit a home run today with this book? So that's not the way to go into it. You should go into it for the joy of the creation, because if you hate creating, find something else to do that you take joy in. And, and yeah, don't bang yourself, bang your head against the brick wall. Now, if you enjoy the creating, but it's frustrating, and you don't seem to get where you want to get. That's a different thing. If you're enjoying the creating, keep at it. And it doesn't mean that it's always going to be a field of roses and the words are going to flow effortlessly from your thingy and you're going to finish by noon so you can go out to dinner at an expensive restaurant and the words will always flow. That's not it at all. There is going to be times where creating is hard slogging work. And there are definitely times when I have received questions about the realms where I just sort of sigh and say, you could read the GD source book and then you wouldn't ask that (laughs) question but but then i i i owe it to my fellow gamers my fans and my readers to go back and look at the source book and say is it clearly laid out could they possibly misinterpret that and there are some things that 
I've noticed from the beginning, I, I noticed it very much with TSR because TSR was in the Midwest. It was middle-class conservative America. They were Christian. And even though I was, they, they could grasp the idea that this was a polytheistic world. The realms had many gods and everybody believed in all of them. Every single one of them would turn to me and say, yeah, but which one is my character's God? All of them. You worship all. Yeah. Yeah. But which one is the real one? (laughs) Guys, you know, if if you can conceive of dragons that talk and elves with and dwarves, can you grasp the fact that there can be more than one God? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, We get all that. So which God is mine? You know, (laughs) You know, so so there are, there are times when you you realize that there is a mindset, and you have to truly work a little harder to show people that this fantasy setting is different in this way, and really have them grasp the implications. It doesn't matter so much in a novel because you are leading the narrative, but if you're designing a, a setting that is going to be played through and in in a role-playing game you have to sort of give people the tools to be different to act different to think differently they have to be in there that's one of the reasons i really enjoy what monty cook and his crew do in their games that are different and i really like what robin laws and uh, gareth Ryder henrahan and simon do at pelgrane press in another direction they do it with the atmosphere more and they're they're calling back the nostalgia buttons and giving us stuff set in the past and so on and what Monty and and sean and and the designers there are doing rob and so on is giving us more um crazy stuff like can you trust what your brain is telling you there are infinite dimensions and and Shanna just wrote a novel, Shanna Germain. Um, um, okay, not just wrote a novel, but um, <laughs> um comparatively recently in my long lifespan, uh, wrote, wrote a novel. Um, at which I thought, ah, that really tells me more about the setting. It sort of crystallizes it. It makes me feel it because we're taking the time instead of these rule books that have gorgeous art and mind-blowing thingies it is immersing you in this setting ah now i get it and or get it more and that's one of the delights of world building creating an imaginary setting that other people can grasp things that aren't the same as our real world that we see outside our windows every day and they can share them they can share this imaginary thing that we've just made up with squiggles of ink on paper and they can go, oh, that's cool, but that would mean this. So that magic would have to work like this. And that would mean that the prince's father would have had to, oh, the prince's father must have had sex with a tentacle thing. Or that race. <laughs> or the, <laughs> or because, because if the prince's father did not have sex with a tentacle thing, that race of half monsters wouldn't exist, would it? Oh God! You know that sort of thing. You, you have to you have work backward from the implications of what you're showing or seeing in the game. Yeah, but whose whose God is real there? Ah, 
<laughs> and there you go. Can you trust a your narrator? Can you trust your own eyes? You know, d- did you drink anything that might have had something put in it? Mm-hmm. No, no, I didn't. I pinched myself, and yes, everything's normal. So therefore, that really is a tentacle thing. Therefore, <laughs> see what I mean? <laughs> but but the moment you get yourself thinking in in different ways then the world building has worked. You are already, your mind has shifted and you're thinking in terms of this thing that is imaginary. And actual things happen where they, somebody will turn to you and say, yeah, but they couldn't have done that because the dragons would have noticed them. And everybody else on the bus or subway car turns and looks at you. And you realize, yeah, for them, there are no dragons. They're imaginary things. So, yes, we're both crazy, folks. Go back to your business. <laughs> you uh you hit a you hit a really great note though with like the the best part about creating these fictional worlds is always sharing them and seeing what people have to say about them. Like the idea of like, oh, like the king must have had sex with a tentacle monster or this is how magic works. Like they're 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 both comments that, that you want to hear because that's that's kind of what you go for. You you want the input to really make the world feel alive, like yes, I I added more than what was just shown. And now you have something to give me back in return, which is your ideas to how the world works. Yeah. So therefore I can say Oh, is that what you think? Well, as a matter of fact, now that I'm writing this sequel, that's the way it's been all along. <laughs> Thank you for the idea. <laughs> no, no, that's that's really where I meant it to be 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, But yeah, there are times when fans of your thingy will point out something to you, and then you went, oh, I never thought of that. Oh, that is cool. Okay, we're we're running with that. And if you want to see that nakedly just watch doctor who because so many people have dragged that in so many different directions and reimagined it in real time they've done it in comic comic books too but you have to buy and read a lot more comic books over a lot longer period of time as i have so that you've seen characters origins retold three four five times now um, it's different with Doctor Who. You can see, at least from the revival with Christopher Eccleston, you can see people turning the tropes on their heads and saying, yeah, but what if this or, yeah, you thought you knew that about this, but it's you what you've known has been wrong all the time. You know, and it can be little things like um, in Doctor Who, the weird noise the TARDIS makes. And River Song tells the doctor. Oh, they don't all make that noise. You just always leave the brakes on, you know, <laughs> and it's so it could be just little things like that. And it's like, oh, there's something new or a new way of looking at what's already there. And th- that can be both um, crazy when it's going in all directions at once. I would submit that at times Doctor Who is like that. Everything's everybody's racing. And, and you say, well, they can't both be true, you know. Both these interpretations can't be true. Pick one. Can we please pick one? You know, sort of thing. But there are other consistency, please. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because otherwise, why do I? Why should I care about this at all? You know, if if there's no consistency and you just change things from months to months, or you don't bother to check back to see that the king's cousin's name is the same as it was last time, 
then then you don't care about this world, so why should I? Um, but but in the other direction, if people come up with new ideas and imagine new things for you, and you go, that is so cool. I would never have thought of that, but that's going to be canon from now on because I love it so much. So I'll just start hinting at it in my next novel or my next short story or my next role-playing adventure and then people will pounce on it and say aha aha look proof and then then you ease it in and now it's canon and that's cool too that's that's fun thing and the delight of um role-playing games is that it is collaborative storytelling around the gaming table and it can force you to flesh out the world whenever i'm running stuff in the realms um I keep a little notepad and the, making notes when I drop into a character, a tavern they've never gone into before. And I, and I tell them some gossip in character as the tavern master, I, I note it down because my players will remember it. And eight years later, they'll say, you remember when that guy told us that there was a lady living upstairs who had red hair and then one night there was a huge explosion and lightnings came out of her windows of her room and they never found her body. Is this the same woman? And you can go, ah, <laughs> and then you can, I, you can I roll it around and they, and you could say, it looks like it might be the same woman. And they go, cool. <laughs> and they feel this great sense of achievement. And you go, that was neat. Now they think I worked it all out. <laughs> Stop I'm personally good. attacking how I DM. <laughs> that raises a question for me. Um, have any of your novels come off of that notepad? No. Um, oh. j- just because of the oh. process by which um, the Forgotten Realms novels, um, which are the, the, the place I role play in most extensively, you know, because I was doing play tests or I was doing stuff for charity at, at Gen Cons or whatever. Um, the, the process by which we wrote novels at TSR with outlining and so on was a different sort of process. It was a meta process. It was, hey, can you write us a Harper novel? And we'd like this person and this person to be in it. And this is the art that's going with it. Oh, OK. You know, so uh, rather than saying, give us do anything. Well, no, I don't ever get to just do anything. It's always going to go through an editor who's going to be, please outline the novel. I know it'll change from the outline to the finished book, but we need an outline to approve. And we also need an outline to write catalog copy from because the in those days, the catalogs were printed catalogs and they had to go out sometimes a year ahead of the publication of the book. So you couldn't just write anything. Bob could just about write anything, but he solved that problem by being three and four books ahead because he was working out where he wanted his characters to go. Right. And and the books are character driven and the best books are always character driven. But no, I, I, I never had the luxury of being allowed to spawn a novel off something that was in the notepad from my DM's notes as I amplified something. What it does allow me to do is when I'm running the same adventure over and over again to make little notes about what worked best as an explanation, what allowed a table full of people who don't know me until that day and don't 
you know, they have varying degrees of knowledge of the realms. What made their eyes all go bing with comprehension the best way? What's the best way to explain something? What's the best way to introduce a new character? What's the best way to voice them that works for everybody so they can concentrate on the story and not on trying to understand what this weird guy with a beard at the other end of the table is saying? You want to keep them immersed in the story, immersed in the setting, not struggling with the metagame things like, um, what does this guy mean? Is that how that character's name is pronounced? Oh, shit, I've been pronouncing it wrong all these years. You know, <laughs> you, you don't want that to be the, the main thing. You want it to, because role-playing is this special, gorgeous thing that is different from a board game or different from a, a Napoleonic miniatures war game, you want people to be immersed in the setting, immersed in the story, and you want them to be acting their characters without thinking, I am acting a character. <laughs> no, you, you want them to be thinking as Zoblob, the beholder, or um, Gruff, Gruff Toes the Dwarf, or whatever it is. You want them to be in character, speaking and acting in character, and hopefully you want them to be doing a minimum of, uh, um, I think that's page 43 of the Monster Manual. Could someone look it up for me? You know, you, you don't want them doing that at the gaming table. You want them speaking as gruff toes and trying to get out of this room with this trap or deal with the talking skull that seems to know gruff toes name. And gruff toes is really scared because he's never seen the skull before, or been down in this dungeon before. How does it know his name? You know, <laughs> and you want to be immersed in that moment. And as the dungeon master, you want to be bringing that to life. And of course, part of all the detailed world building where you spend, you know, days, months, years detailing the setting is so that you don't have to stop and think about the setting. Because it feels real to you. Mm-hmm. And you know it as well as you know the neighborhood that you live in. So you know, if I walk down the street and it's dark, it's the middle of the night, and we have a power failure and all the streetlights go out, and I walk past that oak tree and turn left, you know what's going to be there. Because it's already familiar to you. You hopefully won't walk off the edge of a cliff you didn't know was there. You know there's a street there. So in the same way, if you if you've mastered enough of your setting to know your immediate surroundings. You can concentrate on the storytelling and the unfolding narrative and not on, uh, well, there, I think there's a castle there. Roll, roll, roll. Yeah, it's a pink castle. Uh, roll, roll, roll. Oh, and there's a mountain range right behind it. Uh, you're not ever doing that. You're instead concentrating on the story because it's the story and characters that matter. The world is a backdrop. Your idea is to make the backdrop feel real because you never, ever want, either in a book or in any role-playing campaign, you do not want it to feel like a stage set where all the non-player characters are frozen in place with the lights off and dust settling on their eyeballs. And then on come the player characters and the lights come on and everybody walks and talks and the player characters walk off and the lights go off and everybody freezes again. You don't want that feeling. because then the players will feel that too. And they'll feel like this isn't a real world. It's only real when we're doing stuff. You want the world to have stuff that goes on. So if, if they take a break for a week, things happen in the world. Oh, then the world's real. 
It goes on without it. It's just like the real one. Holy crap. We can't afford to take vacations. <laughs> you know, I would love to just sit in one of your games or whatever and just see how you do it so I can cannibalize how, however it is that you do or your methods for my own game because that's essentially what I strive for. But I find that in my campaigns, I do struggle with kind of tight descriptions and tight characterizations that while I can do that living world feel where stuff happens when the players aren't doing something, uh, it sometimes feel like I'm lacking in description and making it, it actually feel alive from how I describe it to them. Yep. And 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 it, it doesn't matter if you're doing a good job or not a good job. You will always feel like you're not doing a good enough job. Don't worry about it. Just do it. But I have to tell you, if you sat in on one of my gaming sessions, it is really hard for me to convey what a world of difference there is between a bunch of people who have got together for the first time at a convention like Gen Con, and I'm I'm running the Forgotten Realms, and they say, oh, do we meet Elminster? And I start putting on his funny voice and so on. You know, um, there's a world of difference between that and my home realm campaign, because the home realm campaign, they may not draw their weapons in four hours. It's all intrigue, and they're always speaking in character. We had this table rule that there were a couple table rules. One, don't split up the party, you know. Um, but but another one is that rule. Yeah. And and another one was unless you say player to player, pass the potato chips, please, or player to DM. I've lived here all my life. Have I ever seen this guy before? Unless you're saying those two things, everything you say comes out of your character's mouth. So as a result, not only is it a more honest role playing because you're not standing five feet away from the orc discussing how you're going to disembowel the orc without the orc hearing you. <laughs> but it also means that um, once people get past the self-conscious Monty Python, we all have to put on funny voices. Oh, are you a dwarf? I'm a dwarf. You know, once you get past all that nonsense and everybody like um, settles into their characters and they may, they may have an established funny voice for the character, but they're, they feel natural speaking in it. And they're not self-conscious anymore. Once you get past that, you are telling a story together. And that's all you care about. And you care about what happens in the story. You care about what happens to your characters. And you care about the self-consistency of the story. But you're not caring about game stuff. Like, will I get more experience points? Mm -hmm. um, am I running the best character build? I mean, that sort of stuff. I know there are people who play D&D as a competitive thing and they're they endlessly argue the fine points of the rules and whether they can cast this spell and this spell at the same time as they're hasted and do that and <laughs> uh, that sort of stuff just leaves me like okay fine you've missed the point of D, &D. you're not having fun playing it, it's like when we're all young kids and we were just playing we were play acting this is what D, &D is Let's go back to your childhood, 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 and go back to those golden days when you could just play together and tell stories. That's what we're doing. If you're if you're at the table to win, you've already lost the game. You might win, but you've lost. Unless you really are in a competitive tournament in which there are cash prizes and you want to do something. What is the point in ruining the role playing by trying to get ahead, except the way your character would get ahead? 
And you have to figure out, what would my character do? Well, my character loves that character, so there's no way they're going to put their dagger into him. And there's no way they're going to muscle them out of the way to get the gem. They're going to let them pick up the gem first. Yeah. Okay, so that's what I'll do, even though it means my play, my character doesn't get the gem and gets fewer experience points or whatever. Who cares? I mean, that that is a different sort of game than the D&D I want to play. I want to play a D&D in which everybody sitting around the table feels like they're together in this imaginary place, but they feel like the place is real and it's unfolding around them. At the end of four hours, they go, oh, do we have to go back to the real world? I suppose so, because I got to get up in the morning and go to work, but I really don't want to. Can we play all night? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, if, if that's, then you've won because people, everybody, they don't want the moment to end. Have you ever made a player cry because of something that happened in character? Oh, many times. Oh, yeah. But it's not something I set out to try to do. Of course. And, it, uh, and it's not something. Unless we're unless we're joking for before the cameras for charity or something, it's not something that you put on histrionics to do. I will use my molecular thwangulator to save us all now, but quick, I have to be naked to use it. You know, <laughs> I, I, I mean, unless you're play acting for the cameras, you're never going over the top to try and achieve an effect, and you should always be aware of what your players like and don't like, and you have to read them. You know, like if they don't like dungeon crawls, why are you giving them dungeon crawls? If they are genuinely getting scared because you're doing a horror thing, it is cruelty to zero in on that and try and break somebody at the table. And, and I've played games up at my cottage by candlelight in which things got really scary. And some of the players say, okay, I'm going to have nightmares now. Can we stop now? Sure, let's stop. Let's stop. Let's have a snack. Let's let's talk about the game in meta terms, like back out of it, because then you aren't scared anymore. Because even though it was really cool, that moment, why should I leave you with that memory as the way you go to bed on? You know? And I certainly do not want my players having nightmares and waking up screaming. Um, we used to play Arkham Horror. I, I had two cottages, and one of them was my workshop, and that's the one we gamed in. And we had very noisy neighbors who would get drunk and keep us up till all hours. And then they would finally go to sleep, and we would play Arkham Horror. And whenever you saw a great old one in the game, our fun tradition was to you burst out of the, the cabin and run around it in a circuit going <laughs> waving your arms and, and babbling wildly. And because we were playing at very hot summer nights, we were scantily clad or, you know, um, because it was so flaming hot and, and we would circle the cottage and go back inside again. Well, their outhouse was about 50 feet away. So if they were getting up to relieve the, the load of their drunkenness in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden the door bangs open and somebody goes, pass them and around the cottage back in again. If that's <laughs> if that scared the crap out of them, well, that was their problem. But, <laughs> but, oh, but, gosh. <laughs> but, but you don't want to do that to your own players, except 
as a blow off steam, have fun thing. You aren't setting out to upset your players. Sometimes things that happen in game will upset players. And the other thing is, as a dungeon master, I'm not trying to kill characters. I'm assuming that the characters have initiative. I'm assuming that I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. If they're falling off the cliff, they'll have time to cast a spell before they splat on the bottom. Because I'm not interested in killing off their character. I'm interested in then having a great story and a great experience, a great adventure. And, you know, what is a great adventure? Having terrible things happen to you far away and long ago and looking back on it with golden nostalgia and forgetting that you needed to pee, that you were cold, that your fingers hurt. You know, you're forgetting all that stuff and just thinking, wasn't that great? That day we killed the Minotaur. Yeah. Not so great for the Minotaur, mind you, but... but <laughs> But I mean that that's what you're yeah, that's what you're aiming for. You want the world to feel real because if the world setting around you feels real, then the imaginary achievements you've just done around the gaming table by rolling some dice and by telling the dungeon master, I'm gonna try and run around behind it, okay? Then the the achievements you have, you've done around the table, have meaning. They have weight. You've achieved something, even though it's all imaginary, which is why. Somebody will say, well, I got to tell you about the time my character killed Asmodeus or killed, killed Olminster or killed Bahamut. And they go, blah, 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 blah. And they watch everybody's eyes glaze over. And if they're, if they're perceptive at all, they will say, well, I guess you had to be there. Well, yep, that was the whole point. You did have to be there. If you shared the experience and they're going, and then we hit Bahamut and he, Bahamut died. And everybody else is nodding, going, yeah, yeah, because they were there and they remember it. It's that it's that shared memory. And it's the same thing that, you know, soldiers who get together um, years after their real life, horrible war um, adventures. It was something they did together. They survived it. It mattered. It made a difference. And it was also when they were young and felt alive and their knees still worked and they did these cool things together. And that's the same thing. You're building memories. There are memories of imaginary things, but you're building memories around a gaming table of things you did together, moments where you got to shine. So the person who in real life is ugly got to be the beautiful princess. The person who in real life is stuck in the wheelchair got to do something where they outran somebody else and they jumped higher and they achieved something and they can feel just for a moment that they were different than themselves. I think that that really is just kind of what the spirit of role-playing is, why we do this and, and why we want to continue doing it so much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and world building is saying, Hey, I've got a cool thing over here. Come on and play with me. Come into my parlor. Look, my parlor is really cool. And, oh, has it got dwarves? Yeah, but there's no orcs and there's no elves. Oh, okay, I was getting tired of orcs and elves, or whatever it is. You know, you're, you're basically yeah. saying, here, here's a new thing. Try this new flavor. Tutti Fruity Double Scotch. Oh, <laughs> is that's different than vanilla, right? Yep. All right, I think uh, we'll, we'll begin to wrap it up, though. I would love to talk with you again sometime about role-playing and DMing and, and just your experience with it and what you think people should learn. 
Sure. I'd love to talk. Shutting me up, that's a problem. But talking, oh, that's gosh. no <laughs> It, it has been wonderful and a pleasure to actually get to to talk to you. I, I never thought that I would actually get to have a conversation with Ed Greenwood. And now I can brag about it, which that that's, you know, I'm, I'm just a guy. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I'm just a guy who wouldn't shut up and go away. So 50 years later, you know, <laughs> well, for for just a guy, I, I, I am very appreciative of the um the insights and of, of course the advice it was very enlightening yes. and thank you yes. thank you for that thank you so much oh, for my, my, my yeah. pleasure yeah it's been fun this is this is what i love to do you know it's it's like you say hey can you uh, talk to us for two hours about um cleaning toilets well okay but but you know if you say could you talk to us for two hours about world building yes baby this is what <laughs> i do <laughs> and and we love talking about world building and i mean i know I love talking about D and D, so it's just kind of that perfect intersection. That's just like, oh yeah, giddy. Mm. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, so, uh, any any final comments, uh, Ed? Uh, that you any last bit of wisdom and enlightenment that you'd like to leave our our listeners with? Jeez, um, you know, to do last bits of wisdom, I'd have to be wise. Uh, mm. Ah, uh, quick, quick, Ed, get wise. Okay, um, we can end it there. Okay, <laughs> okay, sure. But no, I, I seriously, I would say, um, although there are some people who tragically lose their memories at the end of their life, you can't take the physical stuff with you. You know, the old, you can't take it with you. It doesn't matter if you're worth billions. You can't take it with you. All you have in later life is your memories. So. What is a life well lived? It's making golden memories that you could really enjoy, not be ashamed of, not have dark sides, because there are going to be plenty of those bad memories, too, when, you know, your loved ones die and so on and bad things happen. So you might as well make gorgeous, glorious memories with your friends. Have fun doing it and role playing around a table and all the stuff that goes with that, reading fictional settings you like and creating fantasy settings that you can play in. That's all where you can have the golden memories. So build those golden memories because after all, in the end, that's life. All you have at the end is the memories. You can't eat again the steak dinner that was absolutely gorgeous that you had 30 years ago. That steak is gone, but you can remember the dinner. So build those memories. You've been tuned into Worldcasting, an affiliate production of World Building Magazine. Have any feedback, comments, questions, or concerns? You can get in touch with us on our website, worldbuildingmagazine.com. There you can find links to our social media. Or feel free to come chat with us on the World Building Magazine Discord server. Thanks for listening to Worldcasting, and until next week, keep world building. <laughs>